Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you this morning. Good to be able to stand up here again. And a little bit different format for me today. But uh, it's good to gather together once again in, in the house of the Lord. About a month ago, Glenda and I celebrated our 38th wedding anniversary. Thank you. Yeah, we got up that morning, got dressed. Glenda went to her job cleaning at some place that she was cleaning at. I came here um, to work for the day. It was a typical Thursday. And most of us have, in this room have probably lived long enough to know that as you get older, anniversaries like birthdays tend to get absorbed into the fabric of our lives. And depending on the season of life that you find yourself in, sometimes those special occasions get missed altogether. And rightly or wrongly, birthdays and anniversaries become just another day in the chapters of our lives. But I wonder if anything like that ever happened to Adam and Eve especially considering the 900 plus years that Adam lived. And now the Bible doesn't tell us how long Eve was alive or how long they lived together. But, um, <clears throat> you know, they had lives to live too. Now this message is not about how long Adam and Eve ever lived or whether he ever forgot any of their anniversaries. My purpose is for us to consider and to be encouraged in the roles that God has created us as men and women to fulfill because this is what I believe is at the heart of Genesis chapter 2. Those opening verses of Genesis chapter 2 verses 1 to 3 are really a continuation of chapter 1. Pastor Dave covered all of that last week. And in them, we are told that after six days of creative activity, God rested on the seventh day. And if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, and I'm not talking about the movie, but those that we read in the Bible, you'll recall that a Sabbath day or a day of rest is written into the law given to the children of Israel by God. We read in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter nor your manservant nor your maidservant nor your cattle nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days... The Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the Sabbath day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. It's really pretty obvious, I think, uh, how this fourth commandment relates to the first three verses of Genesis chapter 2. And the fact that in our English translation, anyway, it, verse 1 starts with the word thus. 
I think it's safe to assume that those verses do act as a completion to the first chapter. So I'm not going to elaborate on that any further this morning, other than to say that God has set an example for us of rest and further commanded those whom he created in his image as his representatives here on this earth to keep the day aside for that purpose. So it's not only a prescription given for our physical benefit, but it's also a way for God's people to be set apart from the way that the rest of the world lives. So that begs the question, how are we doing with that? And I'm asking that of myself. How are we doing with that? Through the observance of the Sabbath, the Israelites became an example to the other nations around them, representing God, demonstrating how their God would provide for them when they chose to obey his laws. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, keep it set apart. The same could be said regarding the practice of tithing, but that is another topic for another time, and Pastor Dave can tackle that one. Now let's dive into the rest of chapter 2 of Genesis this morning, which begins in in verse 4, I will say, and it starts off with this statement. This is the history or the genealogy of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4. For the note takers who are with us this morning, you like to jot things down to keep your minds focused on on what's happening here. Um, We'll start our outline with this. The creation of man, verses 4 to 7. We read here, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens before any plant of the field was in the earth and before the herbs of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Now, unlike chapter one, which breaks down creation account into days and gives us some other details about what was created on each day, this portion of chapter two focuses on something else. It focuses on the before. Twice we read that, before any plant or herb of this field, before there was rain, before there was a man to till the ground. Dave pointed out last Sunday how this seems to be in conflict with what we're told in the first chapter. Nevertheless, the focus here is on the creation of man And in in chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, we read how God chose to make mankind in his image and likeness to grant him dominion over the other parts of his creation. And how he made them male and female and commanded them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it 
all those verses that were considered last week. But here in chapter two, starting in verse seven, we are given a few more details of how the creation of mankind came about. Initially, from what we read here, Adam was created a single individual, a fact that we'll come back to later on. But to me, the key part of this passage, what we are told here that separates Adam from the animal kingdom is that God breathed life into him. Now we know that animals also have the breath of life in them, which we should correctly assume that God initiated in some way, and that when animals die, they also cease to breathe. Their bodies will re return to the dust and decay. But that which separates mankind from the animal kingdom and the significance of what I believe is meant by the, that statement that God breathed his breath into Adam is that mankind is not just a physical being made from the dust of the earth. There's something different. There's something that separates him, that elevates him above the rest of the animal kingdom. Man possesses in his being the image of God. We are told that in chapter one. He's been stamped with this, so to speak. To, to reflect his creator means that he also possesses a spiritual side, an eternal soul. And that mirrors the God who created him. And we find this truth supported throughout scripture that although men and women die and their bodies do return to the dust, they have a soul that continues to live on. Let's for a moment consider the passage from Exodus chapter three where God meets Moses in the burning bush. I think most of us are familiar with that passage. God tells Moses here that he is the God of his fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And now all those men were long dead before Moses was called to his ministry of leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. And the significance of this <clears throat> is not what we read in Exodus chapter three, but what Jesus says about it in Matthew 22 in his discussion with some of the Sadducees of his day about the resurrection, he says in Matthew 22, verses 31 to 32, but concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Because Jesus' commentary on this passage, we understand that those men's souls, their bodies decayed, gone, yes, but their souls continue to live on. And there are, of course, other passages in the New Testament that reinforce this truth to us, especially Paul's discourse in, on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So our takeaway from this passage on the creation of man is that God breathed into Adam 
his own breath, which imparted an immortal soul that outlasts our bodies of clay. Now let's move on to the second paragraph of this account. The creation of Eden. Verses eight and nine tell us, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed and out of the ground the Lord God made every tree to grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I wanna suggest to you this morning that there are two parts to this section of God's creation of the Garden of Eden. First, we are simply told that God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And then, in the rest of verse eight, that there he put the man whom he had formed. So let's deal with the first one, the planting of the garden. The first chapter of Genesis sets the stage for this with God having created all the plant and animal life which he desired to inhabit his earth. Now here in chapter two, we are told God didn't create, so to speak, but he took what he created and he planted a garden, which is different in my mind and for those of you who know a little bit about me, you know that I am a gardener. And so in my imagination, I see God taking some of what he had created and specifically arranging it in a defined space. A garden. You know, we put a few trees on one side for shade, maybe a shelter belt a place for the birds to live. We put some shrubs over there for added greenery. Here we'll plant a variety of fruit trees um, <clears throat> where man can gain his food and that will also include the tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. On one side we'll have just grass for the animals to eat and we'll reserve some open space in the middle where there's lots of sun for growing vegetables <laughs> for man to also eat. Okay, now maybe that's just my imagination about this particular passage of God planting a garden, but what I think the point is that God took deliberate care to organize a garden where he could put man to live. And one of the special features of this garden were the trees. That is the emphasis of verse nine. And here we're specifically told that in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life existed. And how these trees are to be identified or distinguished from each other, we're not told those details. We're only told that they were there. And it is later on that we find out the importance of these two trees, especially the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now for the sake of our time together this morning, I am going to skip over those next verses about the rivers and I'm gonna jump down to verse 15 where the passage continues that the Lord God took the man 
put him in the garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. And the Lord God committed, commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God takes the man that he has created and places him in the garden to tend and to keep it. So mankind's initial home was a garden, which I say it was a defined space that he was responsible to tend and to keep. Now the idea behind the word tend is that of cultivating or working the ground. Remember what was said in verse five that at there was no man to what? Till the ground. So to be able to work the ground is a reference to the responsibility that God has given to mankind. And interestingly, the concept behind the word to keep is that of guarding and protecting. So this defined space of a garden is man's responsibility. He's to till the ground, to tend it, and to guard it, to keep it. And I don't think we, need, we should underestimate the importance of those responsibilities. God, what we see in these verses is that God creates and man cultivates. Each has his own responsibility. God causes it to rain. Man's responsibility to give a name. We find that out in these verses as well. God causes mankind or gives mankind the responsibility to be a steward over his creation. Simply put, man cannot do God's part and God cannot, will not do man's part. Next in these verses, verses 16 and 17, we read the importance of the trees. They are for food. You may freely eat, God says. And it is also here that we are given God's only command to the man, one tree that you may not eat from. Now, again, our imagination, my imagination, tells me that there were a variety of trees from which one could eat. They had apples and apricots and bananas and cherries and mangoes and mulberry and, you know, you had breakfast, lunch, and supper and you could have whatever you wanted from those trees to eat. And it's because mankind had choices that this is where the opportunity would lie as to whether he would obey his creator. When given choices, that's where we often go wrong. And Adam had the choice of being, I don't know what button I pressed, but I just did it. Um, <clears throat> not used to this thing either, but anyway. This is, this is where he could either choose to willingly obey 
his creator or not. I won't go any further into any of this because I don't want to take away from what Pastor Joel will be preaching on next week when we get into chapter 3 of Genesis. But the garden not only represented a place for man to live, but it also indicates the responsibility that God has given to mankind. This responsibility to tend and to keep implies physical labor, but it also implies the use of his God-given abilities in, in maintaining this parcel of paradise that he had been placed in. <clears throat> I think... I think I'm still catching up, or am I going the wrong direction? Sorry, no. I think that's right. The creation of Eve... <clears throat> down to verses 21 to 23. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place and the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This next paragraph is prefaced with a statement that runs contrary to everything that we read in chapter one. And that was, it is not good for man to be alone. Everything else in chapter one was good and very good. But here, God had said, it's not good for man to be alone. Therefore, he created the animal kingdom. I didn't read those verses. But in the end, nothing was like or comparable to him. It was not good for him to be alone. There are so many levels that this is true, but I will only address it from the perspective of the fact that man is created to be in relationship. Just as God exists in Trinity and in the relationship to each other as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so too man, as God's image bearer, was created to live in a relational harmony. And so it's not good for him to be alone. It was in these verses 19 and 20 that we discovered man's assigned task naming the animals. And this connection to the animal kingdom sets up the contrast that points to the inadequacy of animals to fulfill the relational need that man has. Now, it's as enjoyable as pets can be in our lives. They are not created for the type of relationship that man is created for. None of them was equal to him or shared his likeness. The scripture points out that no animal was a helper comparable to him. So again, now that God, now that man has recognized his need for relationship, God steps in to fulfill that void in Adam's life. So he created Eve, a woman who was taken from man's side, which signifies to me that she was not only like him, but she was comparable to him. And you may be wondering, how do we distinguish what that means between Eve being like him and comparable to him? 
Well, let me suggest something to you about this. I would suggest that Eve was like Adam in human form. Unlike the other animals, you know, she walked on two legs. <laughs> she was like him. She was a human being. And <clears throat> none of the animals were that way. And she was obviously unique as a female human being, but otherwise she was like him, having been fashioned by the same creator. Her likeness to Adam also indicates that she will fulfill that relational void in his life that the animals could not. But Eve was also comparable to him, which all suggests references her helper abilities. That in her skills and intellectual capacities, she was also responsible for the assigned tasks of tending and keeping the garden paradise that God had committed to them as male and female. Eve was very much Adam's equal, having been created from him and for him. And when presented with this new helpmeet, we have Adam's first recorded words. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Of course, it's not until we get down to the end of chapter three that we are told that Adam named his wife as well, calling her Eve. Up to now, she is just referred to as woman. And the closing verses to this chapter could almost be a fourth point in this outline as the creation of marriage. After Adam is presented with his new helper, the verbiage shifts, establishing for us the covenantal aspect of a marriage relationship. Notice the change in terminology where woman now becomes wife. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife. And they were not ashamed. The covenant of marriage dates back to creation which makes marriage and family the longest standing institutions in the world. And the apostle Paul picks up on the covenant of marriage and his instructions to husbands and wives in Ephesians chapter five, <clears throat> where he relates the relationship to Christ and the church. And in verses 30 to 33, I'm not sure where I'm going with this. <laughs> I'm almost done. In verses 30 to 33, we read, for we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. And then quoting from Genesis chapter two, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Paul adds this is a great mystery, but I am speaking of Christ and the church. I'm gonna invite our musicians to join me on the platform here.
when we come to Christ in faith for our salvation, we are entering into a covenantal relationship with him and with his body, the church. As with any covenantal relationship, there are responsibilities on both sides with both parties. Unfortunately, time, again, does not allow us to unpack this concept beyond that. But Paul says that there's a mystery built into this, a mystery of relationship that we have as believers with Christ. But the symbol of this covenant relationship that we have with Christ is the Lord's table. The bride, the church is his bride. He is our husband, for he has shed his blood on the cross that he might purchase our salvation. And because of what God initiated and Christ completed on the cross, we too can rest in the assurance of our salvation and that of God's love for us. And so as we prepare for this special remembrance of partaking of the elements of the bread and the cup this morning, I'm going to invite our music, our worship team to lead us in a song that will, I trust, help us to prepare to take the elements together. And I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Cause Jesus paid it all. Crimson saint, he washed, he white as snow. now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper's spots and melt the Cause Jesus paid it all And all to him I owe Sin had left the crimson stain He washed in white as snow And when before the Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat, cause Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe, sin had left a crimson saint, he washed it white as snow.
from the dead Oh, praise the one who made my dead And raised his life up from the dead Oh, praise the one who made my dead And raised his life up from the dead Oh, praise the one who made my dead And raised his life up from the dead Once again to the Apostle Paul and his writings in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We read there, For I have received from the Lord that which also I have given to you, that in the same night in which the Lord was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Let's eat this together. We go on to read that in the same manner, Jesus took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Drink from it all of you. This we do in remembrance of him. Let's do it together. Our loving and gracious Heavenly Father, creator of mankind, we thank you that you have purchased our salvation, that you did not leave us in a sinful state in which we find ourselves in, but that Christ was sent to this earth to be the pardon that we needed, that we might find the grace in your sight that we so desperately we're in need of. And Father, we thank you that as we remi remind ourselves this day through the cup and through the, through the bread of the cost of the price of our salvation, that, would be, that we would be ever mindful of, of 
fact that your love was so demonstrated to us that we can take this love that we have experienced and share it abroad, share it with others. Thank you, God, for bringing us together on this day and for allowing us the opportunity to worship you in this way as we have. May you guide us through the week that is before us, keeping us mindful of your presence with us. For all that you have done for us, we give you thanks, and we glorify you this day. Keep us, Lord, through the week that is ahead. Bring us together again next Lord's Day as we have opportunity to come once again to be together as your body as your church and all these things i pray in the name of jesus christ our lord and savior amen god bless you as you go this week in his name <clears throat>